Now, following that kind of difficult discussion, we have also a kind of difficult passage on the lament of Saul. Um, and yet, because this is God's word, there is always, always hope. And, and God's love never does fail us, and God's mercies are new every morning. Um, and we see that even in this lament. So I, I have great faith that even though we have heavy topics for announcements and a kind of heavy passage, we're going we're gonna to get through it rejoicing with God even more, and I'm excited for that. Um, our reading today is going to continue on our Samuel series. We've just finished 1 Samuel, and we are now in 2 Samuel 1. If you are reading along on your pew Bibles, you're going to want to turn to page 295. We will start in 2 Samuel 1, 1, and then we're going to skip a whole bunch of verses and go to 17, because that's how the lectionary does things. Um, before we do that, I do want to add a little disclaimer this is actually a really loaded passage, and I found that um, that there were a few things I could have touched on. There were, um, there were things that I didn't think to touch on until we were just discussing the annual meeting this morning, and now I really want to put a disclaimer out there. So there are things we cannot get to in this passage today that are confusing, like why did David kill the Amalekite. Why was that okay when, when the Amalekite killed Saul, it was not? That's a topic that could take us so long to discuss, and in the end of that discussion, it would be really beautiful. But we're not going to get to it today. Um, but my disclaimer is for the topic of immigration. It is a very serious topic right now in our, in our world, um, and I want you to know that this is one of the very, very few passages in the Bible where the immigrant doesn't come out looking all that great. And that is not in any way tied to racial reconciliation or, or to the immigration topic. It just happens to be that this is one of those times that the immigrant didn't do as God had expected. Um, and we could talk that in its own sermon, but we just can't get into it today. Um, we will touch on it a tiny bit later. With that disclaimer, let's go to the Word, page 295 of your Pew Bibles. Um, here's verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Now we skip to verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Yashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, may no showers fall upon your terraced fields, 
For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Let's go to the Lord. Our gracious God, um, in this text with, with so much richness and so much, much depth, we ask for your guidance. We ask for your wisdom and your understanding. May your spirit open our hearts that we would receive your word, we would receive the message that you have for each of us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so that's the reading from the lectionary, and it gives us one verse, and then it skips a whole bunch, and it goes directly to David's lamentation over Saul. Here's what we're missing, and this is taken not just from those 16 verses in between, but this is also taken from some of their surrounding chapters to give us a little bit of background. Saul has since fallen out of favor with the Lord a long time ago long before this passage happened. In fact, in scripture, his falling out with the Lord was heavily described in his um, dealings with the Amalekites. God had instructed him to entirely wipe out the Amalekites for God's purposes. And Saul kind of obeyed. He kind of did what God asked. He kind of tried to bring glory to God a little bit, but mostly he left some of them alive, not because he was righteous, but because he wanted honor brought upon himself. And now at this point, at the point where our our passage picks up, there's a war going on with the Philistines. And just to put icing on the cake as to how much Saul has fallen from God's grace, from from God's favor, before the Battle of Gilboa, the day before, he went to see a medium to predict what would happen in the battle. Of course, he himself has outlawed mediums and witches and seers, But he has fallen so far that he seems to think himself too mighty, too proud, too good for God's law, and even too good for his own law. That's how conflicted he is in his mind and how broken he is in his spirit. So much that he won't even obey the laws that he himself has set. So during his time with the medium, 
there's a vision of Samuel that comes up, and Samuel declares that the Philistines are going to be victorious, and Saul and his line would indeed fall in battle the very next day. And sure enough, the next day found Saul nearly dying at the hands of the Philistines. He was so close to death that there was no chance for him to survive. He must have been in severe agony, and even worse, his enemies were closing in again. He asked his cupbearer to put him out of his pain, but his cupbearer refused. Now, a cupbearer was a most trusted servant to the king, someone the king that would depend his life upon. So this cupbearer, day after day, would test his food to make sure it wasn't poisoned. That means the cupbearer was willing to put his own life on the line for the king. If anyone was trusted by the king, it was the cupbearer, and yet the cupbearer would not kill him and would not end his pain. There's something deeper going on here that even the cupbearer would not do this. So Saul was leaning against his own spear. In some, uh, in some accounts, he was leaning against his own sword, and he was still failing to end his misery. And then along comes the Amalekite. Now, so far, we can't really, we can't really condemn the Amalekite for helping to end Saul's misery. So far, it sounds like what the Amalekite is about to do is a good thing. But it gets a little sketchy here. First of all, First and Second Samuel seem to have slightly differing accounts, which is kind of funny because First and Second Samuel used to be all one book. So that they have differing accounts is a little bit strange. First Samuel would have us believe that after asking the cupbearer, nobody helped Saul to die, but then 2 Samuel, the Amalekite came by to do exactly that. They shouldn't contradict each other. It may be important to note in the narrative um, that the Amalekite, this story is only referenced by him to David. Nobody else tells the story. It is the story of what the Amalekite says. So it may be that nobody else was around to witness it, and the Amalekite accounted exactly what happened, or it may be that the Amalekite knew of David's impending kingship and wanted to get in his good graces and so said, I helped you by killing your enemy. We're not entirely sure. What we do know, and this is where that immigration issue gets touchy, we do know that Saul had once been tasked to annihilate the entire Amalekite uh, people, all of them, and he didn't. This Amalekite is an immigrant, the son of an immigrant, but his immigration was probably forced. This Amalekite may very well be harboring very ill feelings for Saul because his family, his nation, his kin died at Saul's hands. And yet Saul sees him and he says, if my closest friends and my trusted advisors won't 
help me end my life. Surely my enemy will. We don't know that this Amalekite was his enemy, but it's a fair guess. An enemy yet an immigrant in the land, someone who is probably treated as a second-class citizen, someone who, yes, maybe he harbors a grudge against Saul for good reason, but he still has to live in this land, and he still has to get along, and yet he's probably treated as a second-class citizen, so he needs to make his way. And when Saul asks him to kill him, this Amalekite probably thinks, you know what, I can get rid of my enemy and I can finally step up above that second-class citizenship and I can get in good with David. This is the issue. This, this issue is not saying immigrants are bad in any way. In fact, usually the Bible says exactly the opposite. So this Amalekite does exactly as Saul asks and he ends Saul's life. The depiction that the Amalekite uses makes it seem as though he's merciful and did a very good thing purely out of the goodness of his heart, but a good clue that something is amiss is the actions of Saul's own trusted advisors and friends. It gives us a hint that this mercy killing may not strictly be for mercy's sake. There may have been some good behind it. For all we know, it could have been all good. But something feels very off. Something feels sketchy and dark underlying this narrative. Now, the Amalekite must have thought he was in some sort of luck. He got to end the life of his enemy. And there lay the crown. And so he took the crown off of Saul's head, and he took the bracelet off of Saul's wrist. He did not waste a single second in bringing those articles to David. I want to underline what a feat that was. It wasn't that this Amalekite took these things off of Saul and walked next door and handed them to David. He had to run about 100 miles to be the first one to bear this news to David. He had to get there first, and it wasn't right next door. David had been off. He had been fighting his own battles. He was probably waiting for news of the camp at Gilboa. In fact, if anyone had an interest in how Israel was doing in this war, it was definitely David. And David's heart was going out to Jonathan, to Saul, to his fellow Israelites. He was anxious and wanted news. In order to be the first person that got that news to him, this Amalekite had to have been swift, and he had to have run a great, great distance. And so he did. He wasted no, no time in getting that crown and getting that bracelet to David. Now, the Amalekite thinks that he has good news for David. He thinks that David's going to rejoice that his path to the throne has now become cleared of his enemies. And more so, the Amalekite thinks David is going to be probably grateful to him for being the one to finally kill Saul. 
The Amalekite knows that David is the very, very likely future king of Israel. And so he is careful to bow before David and show David the recognition of that potential kingship. And in return, he expects something. He expects compensation, or he expects recognition, or he expects to rise up and not be treated like the immigration who was, immigrant who was supposed to be defeated with the other enemies. That status in life is not acceptable to him, and we can see why. But he wants something. He's not doing this just out of the goodness of his heart. And to be honest, there's a fair bit of schmoozing going on here, and he's taking advantage of that situation to get in, in solid with this future king. So, did he actually kill Saul? We don't know. The only account is his. If he did not, then he still boasted of it. And if he did, was it strictly a mercy killing? It is possible, but not likely. Now, his clothes have the appearance of that of someone who's in mourning, but his actions speak louder. His, his actions of the heart tell the tale of what's really going on. And it sends all kinds of warnings to us as the reader as we're seeing these things, but it didn't send the warnings to him because for all intents and purposes, he thought he was doing something that David would approve of. And to his surprise, David begins mourning. And then he orders the Amalekite to be killed. And it's one of those passages that really shocks you because was that the right thing to do? The Amalekite was portrayed as being merciful and killing Saul when in reality it seems he was wrong while David was kind of portrayed as being harsh and brutal when in reality God honored that. And we know that God doesn't honor brutality and forcefulness. We know that God honors righteousness and purity. And again, we could spend all day battling over that. And that's not our focus. Our focus today is on why David would react like that and why he even mourned for Saul the way that he did. Because honestly, Saul has been attacking David for a really long time. I don't know if you've ever read the Psalms, but a lot of them aren't really pleasant. David is in a lot of trouble, and Saul is hunting him. And not just a little bit, but for years, Saul is hunting David and making his life absolutely miserable, and David is doing the honorable thing by God this whole way through, and Saul is not this whole way through. And so David has every right to say, oh, Saul is dead. Excellent. He has every right to rejoice. At the very least, he has every right to not care. But then David goes into a deep mourning over Saul. Why? Now, the Amalekite represents all these worldly ways of thinking. 
In his eyes, he sees that Saul has wronged David, and he sees that David was hunted by Saul and assumes David's going to be happy. He assumes David's going to use this to his advantage. But David uses it as an example for the entire nation of Israel for all generations to come. Did you catch that in the verses we read? This psalm was recorded in the book of Yashar, or the book of the upright. Now, this book is only mentioned twice in scripture. Uh, the first mention is in Joshua. It's, and then the second mention is right here in 2 Samuel 1.18. This book is a collection of songs and psalms um, and, and narratives that told Israel's history, but not just the long, boring, complete history. It was really the most important parts of history. It commemorated those highly notable battles, and it showed the greatest characters and the big, big moments in Israel's history. And so when David declares that he wants Saul and Jonathan recognized in this book, he says he wants the people of Israel Actually, that's what the NIV translates it as. The Hebrew says the children of Israel. It's a very, very small little detail, but it means something because this book of Ishar is proclaimed to the generations. It's the most important stories that are told not just to those who are, who are the people of Israel today, but the stories that you must tell to your children and they'll tell to their children and their children's children. These are the stories for the children of Israel, not just the current people. That's how important David views Saul and Jonathan. And that can be problematic for him. The Amalekite thinks he's honoring David by saying, I'm giving you a chance to take an advantage here. You need a political boost. You can totally, as a future king, start rewriting history, and you, can, you don't even have to work that hard with Saul. You can just say all the bad things he did, and you'll be okay. But as a future king, most of them would take the stories of their past kings and say, these are all the bad things they did. Look how great I am. Especially now that the line of Saul has, has mostly ended and David is cutting in. He needs all the support he can. And if he can say, it's good that Saul died and it's good that I'm here, that's going to garner him that support. And the, Amal the Amalekite knows that. And he's trying to give David a political advantage. But David doesn't want that. He wants to honor Saul for some strange reason. And it even comes at his own expense. And here's why. Saul was the anointed one of the Lord. Did he make a mess of things? Yeah. I mean, really, absolutely, he, he messed things up. But it stands that he was the anointed one of God. 1 Samuel 14, 47 and 48 lists the good things that Saul had done for the kingdom. And when Saul was first anointed as a king, he even prophesied for the Lord. As far as worldly kings went, honestly, Saul did okay. 
And more than specifically being a worldly king, he was chosen for his position by God. And that happened for a reason. God specifically informed the people ahead of time that this is what you'll be getting if you demand a worldly king. But they still demanded it. And so God gave them Saul. And Saul made mistakes. But that was the way it was because God put him there for a reason. So David mourned the way he did simply because Saul was one of God's anointed. Good or bad, God had given his position for a purpose, and God calls us to honor each other, especially to honor those who have been given authority by God. 1 Peter 2.17 challenges us to honor the emperor. That was a hard thing to do back then. And not necessarily did the emperor make godly choices. In fact, more often than not, they didn't. Romans 13.7 tells us to give what is owed, whether it's taxes, revenue, respect, or honor. Exodus 20.12 says to honor your mother and father. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's a stretch. But honor your mother and father was not originally meant to honor your parents, the ones who raised you. In ancient Israel, the community was a very communal set up. And so honor your mother and father, yes, meant your own parents, but also meant your teachers, your leaders, and those in God-appointed positions. So David knows that no matter the mistakes Saul has made, he is to honor Saul because God calls us to honor each other, and specifically God called the Israelites to honor those he appointed as king. The appointed kings are also called sons of God. It is imperative that Israel appropriately honors the, chosen, the ones God chose as kings, as one day there will be a perfect son of God, a perfect Messiah on the throne who is worthy of all honor. So as king, as a person Saul messed up and David, is not honoring or glorifying those sinful uh, actions. And he's not honoring Saul's pridefulness. In fact, in all of his actions, David has taken care to always honor God up to this point in his own actions, even while respecting Saul's position. Saul's um, office and appointment is a godly one, and that is setting the stage for God's kingdom to come. So by honoring Saul, God, David is actually honoring God and not the bad things that Saul has done. So this is not a call to follow corrupt leaders. Um, David and Saul were enemies, and David did not bow to the ungodly ways of Saul. So in this, there's also an underlining mourning over corruption of the story, and um, of Saul, really. But it's more of a call to follow where God is asking you to follow, and to honor that which God is asking you to honor, even in those moments when doing so feels very difficult. And David was not recognizing the authority of Saul, 
but rather the authority of God. The God whom he trusted to be in control, even above and beyond Saul and his shortcomings, even above and beyond the situation that Saul got them into. Of all the chances he got, he never killed Saul himself, and he did not rejoice in Saul's death because he wanted to do all things the way God had called him. But apart from mourning for just Saul, I think more importantly, David was mourning for the whole of Israel. Saul was a representative and a leader over Israel. He came in a time where Israel had pridefully said, this nation is about us, not God. So we want a king who can lift us up and we're rejecting our godly king. Israel had become prideful and fallen. And Saul is a representation of that. Saul as a king could have led Israel back to God, back to a right relationship, but instead Saul himself said, I am a good king of my own right. I deserve glory. And Saul became prideful and he fell. And the, the Amalekite in this story serves as even more of an illustration of this. The Amalekite said, you know what? I'm going to make a way for myself. I am going to do things the way I see, and I'm going to become great. And so he murdered in the process of trying to become great. And so his pridefulness came and he fell. Over and over, we're seeing this pattern in First and Second Samuel. Pridefulness leads to a broken relationship with God, and then there's the fall. And this fall, I think, is what David also mourns. He mourns Saul as God's anointed, but he mourns Israel's brokenness. This is why this is written in this book of Yashal. Sure, great things happen in this book, and you look and you see, oh, that was a great leader, and that was a great moment. But with all of those things, you also see this is the moral of that story and the thing that Israel needs to remember and learn from from generation to generation. The, the stories in the book of Yashal don't just go in there to say, there's a good guy. They go in there to say, there is a good guy, but God wants us to learn. And this is what God wants us to learn, that when we step away from God, when we become prideful, when we start glorifying ourselves, that's when we will fail. Now I said there's good news, and there is, because there always is, because it's, it's the word of the Lord. There will be a perfect king of Israel. Jesus is on the throne now, in this kingdom that has already begun, but not yet come. And every one of us becomes prideful. Every one of us does things for ourselves. Every one of us separates from God. And every one of us has a bit of a broken relationship with God from time to time. But Jesus came so that God's kingdom could be established. Jesus came, and because Jesus came and died for us, our sins are forgiven, and our relationship with God is restored. And I think that is the beautiful news. 
So here's what we, we need to remember. The brokenness always came from the pridefulness. And then there was a fall. But God kept on going and the story of God continued. There is redemption. But we must take this away. We need to honor the things that God honors. Even if it's hard. Even if it means, like David, putting your own, uh, your own hopes aside and saying, even if this hurts my kingship, I'll honor Saul because God wants me to. We need to honor what God honors. We need to lament what God laments. God laments the brokenness in his relationship with his people. We need to lament that and learn from it so that we can stay in right relationship with him. But the good news is that we also can and need to rejoice when God rejoices. Rejoice that the kingdom of the Lord will come. Rejoice that we can be restored to God in right relationship. And that is where we end. We'll pray now, and um, afterwards we'll go into a time of worship by offering our gifts to the Lord. So I invite the ushers to come forward and get ready to take offering. Our gracious God, thank you that in our crazy mixed up story, in our pridefulness, in our sin, God, you never give up on us. God, we ask that you would help us to honor those things that you honor, to lament what you lament, and we praise you that you've given us reason to rejoice and that we can rejoice in the things that you rejoice in. Help us to do exactly that as we go forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.